Hello, welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm Yael Ziegler, and we're going to be picking up here in Parshat Ve'ira, in our second section of our series on Parshat Ve'ira. We're picking up in Parag Vav Pasuk Yud. We've already seen this very dramatic opening to the Parag in which God comes to Moshe, and once again appoints him in order to take Amsel out of Mitzrayim. We mentioned, however, that it seems to be this time his appointment is for not for political leadership, not in order to bring about the moral goal of removing Amisrael from slavery, but rather as a spiritual leader in order to promulgate God's name in the world, in order to appoint Amisrael to their role of fulfilling the promise that God gave to their forefathers. And um, this, this uh, attempt of Moshe actually meets at least initially with a terrible failure. Moshe speaks to Bnei Israel, he tells them these things, and they're absolutely un- unwilling to listen to him. They, they have too much going on. Their terrible labor uh, leaves them impatient and dispirited, and they have no possibility of listening to these lofty words. And that's the point that we left off last time. We're beginning now in Shmuel Paragvav Pasuk Yud, where again God turns to Moshe, and again he sends him to Paro. God spoke to Moshe saying, by the way, this is the first time that this very famous sentence, which is going to appear over and over throughout the Torah, this is the first time that this sentence appears. I will say one more thing about this sentence, which is a rather common sentence. So there isn't that much to say about it. God spoke to Moshe saying, but I did want to mention that throughout the section, starting in Perak Vav and continuing through Til Perak Zayin Pasuk Hey, the word daber appears 14 times, making it a keyword. Keywords tend to appear in multiples of seven. Uh, and actually, it's even more interesting than that. Uh, seven times the word daber describes God's words, and seven times it describes human words, namely that of Moshe and Aaron. So this section really does seem to be about appointing Moshe and Aaron to be God's spokespeople, right? So that God speaks to humans so that humans can speak God's words, God's message. And this is really what I think this, this whole idea of taking Am Yisrael out of Egypt is about. In this section, it's no longer about removing, removing them from this immoral situation of slavery, but rather removing them so that they can convey the word of God. In the meantime, what is it that God says to Moshe here in Pasuk Yud Aleph? Bo daber el paro Come and speak to Paro, the king of Egypt. And he will send Bnei Israel from his land. And Moshe spoke these words before God saying, Bnei Israel did not listen to me. How will Paro listen to me? and I am of uncircumcised lips. Well, some of these ideas seem to cohere with earlier ideas, namely that where Moshe really uh, seems to feel that he is unworthy um, of representing God because of some sort of deficiency in his speech. Uh, but let's let's see if we can take apart this verse a little bit more slowly. First of all, we'll begin with, This is a very interesting formulation. I believe it's the only place in the Tanakh where we have Moshe speaking before God and not to God. There's something very deferential about this description, right? Moshe is speaking before God. It's not because he doesn't respect God that he's going to refuse, 
But once again, Moshe gives up, and he seems to give up in the wake of Am Yisrael's failure to listen to him. He says, well, Bnei Yisrael didn't listen to me. How can can Paro uh, possibly listen to me? Once again, Moshe seems to refuse this this mission, um, and he links it to what he said before, which is Lo I'm not a person of words. Kvad lashon, right? I'm I'm a person that is heavy of speech and heavy of tongue. Here he doesn't exactly use that phraseology. Instead, he uses perhaps a more interesting phrase, Aral Sfataim. I am of uncircumcised lips is a very interesting phrase. It's not exactly clear what it means. Usually, orla is describing lack of circumcision of the sexual organs and not of the lips. Although the Midrash does point out that there are four things that are called uncircumcised in human beings that are called orla, four parts of the human body, the ears, the hearts, the tongue, and the male sexual organ. And this comes to teach us, says the Midrash, that these are the areas that humans could think that they were born perfect. These are the areas, therefore, in which God tells them, you are not perfect, and even worse than that, one has to limit these areas in order to achieve wholeness, in order to strive towards some sort of sublimity, in order to strive towards some manner of perfection. Ultimately, of course, as we will see, Moshe becomes the ultimate Ish Devarim, because here he recognizes that he is an Aral Sfatayim. He is of uncircumcised lips. But why does Moshe again refuse on these grounds? Well, there are pretty much two ways to understand this. One is, of course, as we mentioned before, that he has just now suffered some sort of setback in terms of Am Yisrael listening to him. Um, and, and therefore, that really um, that really has an effect on him. And he says, well, you know, I can't even convince my own people. How am I going to convince the great Paro? The other approach is that he's objecting not specifically um, because Abisrael hasn't listened to him, but because of the reason that Abisrael hasn't listened to him. In other words, uh, what God is asking him to do is no longer to be the political leader who has a moral message that Moshe perhaps could have handled it certainly at some point, but here what he's objecting to is the nature of the the role, which is to be the spiritual leader, to become the spokesman of God. Uh, there, instead of saying I'm not a good speaker, he says I'm aral svatayim, which seems to be a phrase that resonates with theological implications. What Moshe seems to be saying is, is I am not. Um, uh, I'm not fully capable of representing God. This objection of Moshe doesn't really seem to be resolved because the next pasuk, pasuk yud gimel, simply seems to reopen the introduction of the story. Adonai el Moshe ve'el Aharon, and God spoke to Moshe and to Aharon. el Israel, and He commanded them to go to or concerning Bnei Israel. The El Paromech Mitzrayim, and to go to Paromech Mitzrayim, Lahotzi et Bnei Israel Me'aretz Mitzrayim, to take Am Yisrael, to take the, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And this seems to be a very formal beginning. Uh, what's interesting is that it seems to be that there's no response to Moshe's objection. We just sort of reopen the story again with a kind of a formal reintroduction of the story. Although the Abarbanel suggests that there is actually a hidden answer in this pasuk, and that is, of course, the addition of the name Aharon, that God spoke this time not just to Moshe, but also to Aharon in order to command them to go to Egypt. And that seems to indicate that um, Moshe's 
Moshe's objection is heard by God, and the same answer is given as was given in Perk Dalid at the burning bush, and that is that God says, okay, Moshe, if you are not capable of doing it on your own, I will also command Aaron to go alongside of you, and then he will give you the kind of support that you need. In any case, following this reintroduction, this introduction of the story, we now have what seems to certainly seems to be an interruption in which we are told the genealogy of Moshe and Aaron. The question as to why we have this interruption at this point has, we'll be dealing with in the next few minutes. Uh, certainly it seems to be that we have to establish their pedigree in order to introduce them as the leaders now. Um, and what follows is this, um, this introduction of the families of Moshe and Aaron. The question that remains as to really whose pedigree we're introducing now. Are we introducing Moshe's lineage? Are we introducing Aaron's lineage? Is it because we haven't yet met Aharon properly and so this is really about Aharon or and or or perhaps we are being introduced specifically to Aaron here as Moshe's solution or perhaps Moshe is being told no you can assume the mantle of religious leadership not because you are worthy necessarily on a personal level of speaking in God's name perhaps no human being is really perfect circumcised lips has perfect uh, ability to speak in God's name, but you do come from this established tribe. And so perhaps we are establishing Moshe's pedigree. Well, let's begin reading through this section, which which seems to read like an interruption, and see if we can understand it um, on some level. Pasuk Yudalad begins, These are the heads of the households, the children of Reuven, who is the eldest of Israel, Chanoch, Ufalu, Chetzron, Vecharmi, Ela Mishpachot Reuven. So these are the four sons of Reuven that go down to Egypt. These are the families of Reuven. Pasuk Petav, Uvnei Shimon, and the sons of Shimon, Yimuel, Yamin, Veohad, Yachin, Vitzochar, Vishau, Benaknanit, Ela Mishpachot Shimon. These are the sons of Shimon. These are the same sons that are mentioned in Bereshit, Perak, Vav. Therefore, these are the sons of Shimon that go down with him to Egypt, Yimuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, Sochar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite. These are the families of Shimon. So it seems to me that we're doing this in birth order. We're certainly not starting with the tribe of Levi, but what we're going to see is that we're going to get stuck with Levi. In other words, we're not going to keep going and then have Eli Rashi, um, you know, Bnei Yehuda. We're not going to have Bnei Yisachar, Bnei Zebulun. We're not going to continue with the family. But we do start with Reuven and Shimon only to get to Levi. There's been a, a certain amount of discussion among the Midrashim and the biblical interpreters as to why we start with Reuven and Shimon at all. It is a little bit difficult. It, it, it's, uh, it's hard to really understand why this happens. Rashi says that we simply start in birth order and we're leading up to Levi. Uh, other Midrashim seem to go in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, they, they, they suggest that because uh, both Reuven and Shimon are going to be skipped over, when we're actually looking for leadership of Am Yisrael, therefore to make sure that we know that they're important, that they're still honored, despite the fact that they lose out on this, this role of leader, therefore we mention them. Even Ezra says something similar. He says this is really the only way that we can give them honor is by mentioning them, despite the fact that they are not going to receive leadership. Again, it seems as though what we really have here is the beginning of mentioning the family until we arrive at the tribe that we're really interested in describing. That, of course, is the tribe of Levi. 
Levi is the third born son, and so he's the third one here in this list. Starting Pasuk Tetzayin, we actually have a certain kind of a, uh, of a of a subtitle, right? We started with Ela Rashi Beit Avotam. These were the heads of the house of the household, and now we're going to have in Pasuk Tetzayin the Ela Shmot Bnei Levi Letoldotam. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. That uh, is going to actually, uh, that opening is actually going to have a closing at the end of Pasuk um, Yud Tet, where we're again going to be told, So we have here a certain, uh, what we call an inner inclusio, an opening and closing, in which we see the background of the, the family of Levi, uh, starting in Pasuk Tezayim, These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Upehat, Umerari, and really, according to the pattern that we've seen, it should stop here, right? Because these are the names of the sons in Bereshit, Perak, and Vav, who went down to Mitzrayim. But here we get a piece of information that we did not get with either of the other sons, not with Reuven and not with Shimon, and that is that we are told the age of Levi when he died, Levi, or I should say the amount of years actually they lived, and the, the years of the life of Levi, Sheva Ushloshim Umeat Shana, 137 years. Um, at this point, we see that we are actually going to be focused on this family. And not only are we focused on the family in order to see how long Levi lived, which, you know, again, singles out this family for special treatment. We are then now going to go into the next generation. Pasuk Yudzayim tells us, B'nei Gershon Livni Vishimi Lemishpachotam. We're told the names of B'nei Gershon. Now in Pasuk Yudchet, Uvnei Kehat, Amram, Vitar, Vichevron, Vuziel, Ushnei Chaye Kehat, Shalosh Ushloshim, Umeat Shana. We're now told the sons of Kehat. Kehat is the second son, and here we're told that he has uh, four sons, Amram, Vitar, Chevron, and Uziel, but we also pause to see how long Kehat lived. The years of the life of Kehat were 100. Um, and 33 years, and so we see that we seem to be singling out first Levi, we find out how long he lived, and then Kehat, we find out how long he lived, and now we go on to meet the, or to see the grandchildren from the third son of Levi, Mirari, that's in Pasuk Yutet, Uvnei Mirari, Machli, Umushi, Eile Mishpechot HaLevi, Letodotam. We now close the section that opened we end it with very similar words, that, uh, as I said before, sections off the background of the family of Levi. And now, and, and during the course of this background, we singled out both Levi and Kehat uh, by mentioning their ages or how long they lived, the ages of their death. And now we're going to focus in on this generation. We're going to focus in on this generation in two ways. First of all, again, by noting um, who specifically uh, we're told how long he lives, and also by singling out certain people to describe their marriages. Okay, so let's start in Pasuk Kaf. Amram takes Yocheved, his aunt, for himself as a wife. And she birthed for him Aharon and Moshe. And the amount of years of Amram's life were 137 years, just like his grandfather, just like Levi. And so what we see here is that of all the sons of Kehat, 
who was singled out as in order to tell us how long he lived, Amram Yitzhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the one that we're focused on is Amram. And we see two things about him. First of all, we see how long he lived. And also we see that he married uh, this woman, Yochever, and that she gave birth to Aaron and Moshe. I will say one thing about uh, this section in relation to what we already know from Shemot Perak Bet, and that is that we already saw uh, Yochever and Amram ha- giving birth to Moshe. Here, what we see is, is that we fill in the blank of the names. There we just saw a man from the house of Levi who took for himself a wife who was a daughter of Levi, and they had a uh, a daughter, and they had a son, and the sister stood, right, Miriam stood by and watched the son. But in that story, nobody gets names, and I do think that perhaps one reason that we have this interruption in order to get a backdrop of lineage, aside from the fact that we're being introduced to Moshe and Aaron's pedigree, what we also begin to sense is that people are getting their names back. And perhaps that's also another reason why we start with Reuven and Shimon, because it's not just Levi that's getting their name back slowly but surely. I'm Yisrael through the process of redemption, through the process of God coming and introducing himself by name to them and promising that he's going to take them out of this anonymous condition of slavery, he is beginning to give them back their ability to have names. And so this section is filled with names. It's filled with a sense of lineage, of dynasty, of continuity, of identity. Um, What's also, I think, important here is that they get their names back, but what we're only told is that they give birth to Aaron and Moshe, where Miriam is not mentioned here. And again, I don't think it's because she's not important. She certainly is important, both in Shmuel Perfet and in later stories. She's also going to be of great significance. But for our purposes here, and our purposes here are to establish the lineage and the pedigree and the importance of of this family, which is going to function as the, the, the mouthpiece of God and the leaders of the people, the people who are important here are Aaron and Moshe because they're the ones who are being appointed to go to Am Yisrael and to go to Paromach Yitzrayim in order to function as God's representative. Pesuk um, Aleph, we're told the children of Yitzhar, Uvnei Yitzhar, Korach, Venefeg, Vizichri, Uvnei Uziel, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, the Eltafan, Vizichri, Vaikach Aharon et Elisheva Bata Minadav Achot Nachshon Loli Isha, Vatelet Lo et Nadav, Vet Avihu, Vet Elazar, Vetmar. It's a little bit hard to explain why they skip over Hebron. Um, some of the Farshim, I think the Rashbam, I believe, relates to this rather generally and says that the only people that are mentioned here are going to be people that are going to reappear in later events. Certainly, we're going to see in a moment that they are going to focus specifically on Korach's lineage. That may be the reason why Yitzhar's children are mentioned. Um, you know, it's hard to account for every detail here. The, the, um, the, the many names, however, I think, are important in light of what we just said. But in Pasuk of Gimel, the fact that we're told now about Aaron's marriage means that we go from focusing on Levi to focusing on Kahat to focusing on Amram, who is not just described in terms of his age, in other words, in terms of his dynasty, in terms of his being part of this dynasty, like we have in Breshit Perakeh and Breshit Perak Yud, but rather also in terms of his marriage, where we focus here on Aharon, who is getting married, who is having children, who is building a family, who is building a dynasty. Here in Pasuk Kafgimel, we're told, Aharon and Aharon took Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, 
the wife of Nachshon to him as a wife, and she gave birth for him to uh, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Tamar. And of course, we know that this is going to be the family of the Kihuna. Which leads me really to one last point, which I didn't mention before. And that is that we saw that uh, previously at the burning bush, when Moshe objected over and over to the mission, and only at the very end of his objections, does God become angry at him? We're told that it says there, you know, Hashem Moshe. And at that point, uh, God appoints Aaron to go alongside Moshe and to speak on his behalf. And um, there we discuss the question of whether or not Aaron's appointment alongside Moshe is actually part of God answering Moshe's hesitations, or is there an element of punishment, especially in light of the fact that Moshe does not receive the kihuna, he doesn't receive a dynasty continuity, a family that continues his leadership, while Aharon does. And um, in the same way, I think that some of the Mefarshim, there's a, a Midrash in Shemot Rabbah, Zion Aleph, which says something similar here, that here Moshe objects and he says, you know, um, how can I go to Paro, Aral Svatayim? And that is the reason that we have this whole lineage. And the lineage here is really focusing not on Moshe, Moshe's prestige, Moshe's dynasty, Moshe's pedigree, the reason that Moshe is chosen, but rather on Aharon, right? And then in fact, because of Moshe's refusal, God says, okay, I'm going to give you Aaron, and look at what Aaron is going to be. Aaron's going to create this family, this dynasty of Kihuna, and that really this whole section here that interrupts the story in order to bring us the backdrop of these two figures is more particularly focusing on Aaron. I will say just that the other side, of course, um, is that it, in fact, this is not a punishment for Moshe, but this is really part of Moshe's role. Uh, Moshe's pedigree is here, but it's true that Moshe does not have continuity, but one could suggest that it's not because he's being punished, but rather because Moshe himself is a one-generation phenomenon. He can't be continued. He can't be transmitted. His legacy is really given horizontally to this generation rather than passed down for future generations. And so that's not necessarily a punishment of Moshe, it's just a fact of who Moshe is. In any case, I think what we do see in this section is that we are very much focused on Aharon and not just the background of where Aharon comes from, but also Aharon's future. Now, Pasuk Kavdalid, as I said, focuses on Korach, right, the son of Yitar. Um, Pasuk Kavdalid tells us, Uvnei Korach Asir ve'elkanah ve'eviyasaf Right, so it seems pretty clear that uh, Korach is being set up here as Aaron's, if not his equal, certainly his rival, someone who is very much um, on par with him in terms of family status. Pasuk Kafe, however, goes on and tells us about Aaron's son, Elazar, and he also, we focus on his marriage, the Elazar ben Aaron, makachlo mi benot putielo liisha, uh, Elazar, the son of Aaron, takes from the daughters of Putiel for him as a wife, and he gives birth to Pinchas. These are the heads of the household of the Levi'im, according to their families. Um, one, Just one um, point here about uh, Elazar's marriage. So we said we focused on Aaron's marriage, we focused, uh, we focused on Aaron's marriage, now we're focusing on Elazar as the continuer of Aaron's legacy. It's interesting that he takes from the Benot Putiel, which, as Rashi notes, very much reminds us of Yosef, 
Um, it also is interesting that Aaron marries uh, uh, a woman from the tribe of Yehuda. Right? So we have here within this very special family, um, very important leadership family, traces of other leadership tribes, whether it's the tribe of Yehuda or whether it's the tribe of Yosef. So we have here, you know, sort of like um, uh, echoes of those tribes as well. Pasuk Kavav goes on to tell us, who Aaron and Moshe? This is Aaron and Moshe. To whom God said to them, take out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, which seems to have some sort of military implication, either according to their armies or troop by troop, or in some sort of way we have a sense that they're leaving Eretz Mitzrayim with dignity, with um, uh, aristocratic bearing, with a certain amount of perhaps uh, in military formation. They're not sneaking out in the middle of the night. And this is because they're being led by Aaron and Moshe, these two very illustrious members of the tribe of Levi. And here we are, the, the Pasuk explains to us why we've been introduced to Aaron and Moshe. Pasuk They're the ones who speak to Paro, the king of Egypt, who Moshe the Aaron, to take Amisrael out of Egypt, they are, he is, Moshe and Aaron. You note that Psukim Kavav and Kavzayin are sort of a unit in themselves. They open with the words, who Aaron and Moshe, and they close with the words, who Moshe the Aaron, right? These are Aaron and Moshe. These are Moshe and Aaron. And in both of these Psukim, we're being introduced rather formally to their role. Uh, now that we see their background, now we can understand why they assume this role. The Midrash points out that in the first mention of Aaron and Moshe, Aaron is mentioned first. In the second one, Moshe is mentioned first. And Midrash suggests that that is to show us that they are, in fact, equal. Sometimes one is mentioned first, sometimes the other. I would suggest that coming out of this description of the genealogy, it makes sense to put Aaron first, since, as we saw, Aaron seems to be really featured in that genealogy, whereas once we begin to transition back into the actual role, there seems to be little doubt that Moshe is the initiator. Moshe is the primary primary uh, bearer of this role. Pasuk kavchet vayhi biyom diber Adonai el Moshe be'eretz Mitzrayim. It was on the day that God spoke to Moshe in the land of Egypt. Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe le'mor ani Adonai daber el paro melch Mitzrayim et kol asher ani dover elecha. Um, and God says to Moshe, saying, I am God. Speak to Paro, the king of Egypt, all of these things that I am telling you. And Moshe said before God, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how will Paro listen to me? Now, I think probably anybody who's, who uh, you know just read, as we did, Perak Vav, Sukim Yud and Yudbet, which we opened with, sees that there's some kind of repetition that's going on here. And this repetition has been dealt with by biblical interpreters in different ways. Um, many of the biblical interpreters, Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Rashbam, suggest that this is just picking up from the previous conversation. That, in fact, the previous conversation uh, began with God telling Moshe his whole speech of, I am God. And then he turns to Moshe and says, take the people out. And Moshe says, no. And we interrupt the story in order to give us the story of Moshe and Aaron's worthiness, their pedigree, their lineage. 
And then we return to, and what we were talking about before was, on the day that God said to Moshe, I am God, speak to Paro, everything that I tell you. And Moshe said, I'm Aral Sfataim. When that happened, and that leads us into Perak Zion, Vayomer Adonai El Moshe, and at that moment, God said to Moshe, look, I have made you as a God for Paro. You are the representative of God to Paro. And Aaron, your brother, will be your spokesperson. And so the idea here is, as we said before, that this is God's answer. We noted before that God didn't seem to properly answer Moshe when Moshe said to him, I'm of uncircumcised lips. Whereas according to this reading, God does answer Moshe, but first the text itself sort of interrupts the story to give us a sense of their lineage. And then it comes back to the story by picking up where we left off and repeating what we saw before. So that's one approach to this repetition. However, the Ramban suggests that this is not mere repetition, but that this is a second time that God speaks to Moshe. The Ramban explains it in the way that he explains it. I want to just draw your attention to a few textual points. And with that, we'll conclude today's uh, today's shiur. And we'll, we'll begin next time with Perak Zayin Pasuk Aleph, even though, admittedly, it certainly is part of our section, but we seem to be coming to the end of our time. So we'll pick up on that next time. But I do want to mention that in this second conversation between God and Moshe, if you see it as a second conversation and not as sort of picking up from the first conversation, you note that there are several changes. And in fact, God's words are a little bit different, right? God starts by saying, Ani Hashem, I am God, which he didn't do in Pasuk Yud, or you know, he didn't do in, in Yud Aleph. And here he says something much less specific to Moshe. He says to Moshe, speak to Paro everything I tell you, not speak to Paro and tell him to send B'nai Israel out of their land. And here, Moshe's words are also a little bit different. He has less specific objection, right? It, it, previously, he said, well, B'nai Israel didn't listen to, to, to me. How will Paro listen to me? And I am Aral Svatayim. And here, Moshe simply says, I'm Aral Svatayim. How will Paro listen to me? So how do we make sense of some of these changes if we assume, uh, like the Ramban and unlike Rashi, and Ibn Ezra, that this is not mere repetition, but that it really represents a second time that God comes to Moshe. Well, again, one could understand it in different ways, but I'll just perhaps suggest um, that, that, that perhaps we should be looking at these two questions as, once again, the two fundamental missions that God sends Moshe on. The first mission is when God tells Moshe, go to Paro and say that you have a moral obligation to let Am Yisrael out of the, leave this land, to let Am Yisrael leave slavery. And Moshe says, well, I'm not really a very persuasive person. Look, I can't even persuade Am Yisrael to listen to me. How can I be their political leader? The second time that God speaks to Moshe, he says, Ani Hashem, I am God. You go to Paro and say everything that I tell you to say. You speak in the name of God. This is a different sort of mission. It's a theological mission. It's a religious mission. And here Moshe's objection is different. Here Moshe's objection is, I am of uncircumcised lips. How can any human being possibly represent God? Now, I, this is really, I'll just conclude by saying this whole section is really, it's a very difficult section in Sefer Shemot. 
Admittedly, some of the things that I said within this shiur uh, contradict one another. Uh, in other words, before I had suggested, for example, that maybe the whole claim that I'm aral sfatayim, that Moshe makes, that I'm of uncircumcised lips, is there in order to say I am unworthy of being God's representative. And here I sort of tried to divide between the two places in which Moshe calls himself aral sfatayim. I know that this is a very difficult section. It leaves us perhaps with more questions than answers. But of course, in the nature of this rather short shiur, where we're just trying to trying to get a bit of an overview, um, you know, pretty much I tried to give you a sense of the flow of the section to address the basic issues and to get a sense of where Moshe, Aharon, and God are, and B'nai Israel during the course of this story. In our next class, we're going to start, as I said, with Perek Zion, Pasuk Aleph, and we're going to begin by trying to understand God's um, response to Moshe, Moshe's objection, whether or not it's the second time that he says it or the first time he says it, certainly it seems to be that God's response is in Perzain Pasuk Aleph. And then we'll go on and we'll begin to see some of the encounters between Moshe, Aharon, and Paro, the beginning of the plague story.